So we're back together again. Together again. And this is the Weirdest Thing podcast. I am Amelia Amporo. I am Scotty Milder. We are your regular co-hosts. We are your normally scheduled co-hosts. Yeah. And we do want to thank Elizabeth Dwyer for hopping in kind of very last minute last time. Very last minute. But I think it was a, was a, fun, was a fun episode. I've, yeah, I've got, got a lot of feedback. Yeah. I was going to say got a lot of feedback on that one. So Yeah. Yeah, good times. Um, well, I'm definitely not going to be talking about naked people uh, this week. So, okay. great. <laughs> um, we're we're going to go back to like a very typically uh, grim Scotty topic. Oh, great. But Are you going first? No, I think we're actually starting with you this time. Oh, oops. Well, okay. Then we'll <laughs> we'll delve into the darkness mm-hmm. post post Scotty. Okay, cool. So this is actually funny thing about my uh my topic for this week, I guess. What am I trying to say? Funny thing about my topic for this week is that it actually is uh comes from a listener suggestion that I discovered when I finally logged into the <laughs> weirdest thing podcast Gmail uh <laughs> account that had been left alone for quite Three some years. time. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And uh, we found a lovely message from some friends of ours, Eve and Katie, and they suggested that uh, we cover the history slash origin of cocktails. No. So um, that's what I'm going to cover today. Before we get started, Scotty, what's your favorite cocktail? Ooh, um, I mean, I'm a big fan of the old fashioned. I do love if, if you do it right. I love a, a good rusty nail, but it's like those are so hard to do right. What's in a rusty nail? It's scotch and drambuie. But mm. the thing is, like, if you order it in a bar, usually what I find is that they'll put in like two fingers of scotch and one of drambuie, which is just like drinking syrup. It's like so sweet. Oh, yeah. Where I think, like, the way you really should do it is like mostly scotch, kind of a splash of drambuie. And then some bitters to cut the sweetness. So. And then some bitters. Yeah. Um, mm. It's a good drink because it's it's like, it's very sweet, goes down easy, and it's all liquor. So you can get yourself real good and fucked up. Real good and sauced. Fantastic. Yeah. Okay. Okay. Well, great. That's what I'm talking about today. Yeah. Not the rusty nail, but cocktails in general. Mm-hmm. Sources for this are Wikipedia, The Daily Meal, several articles from Wine Enthusiast, uh, the Smithsonian, Mental Floss, Food and Wine, also several articles, Liquor.com, Difford's Guide, The Conversation, and NPR. Mm. So, Scotty, if you had to guess, how old is the cocktail? Just the, the general idea of yeah. the cocktail? Mm-hmm. I actually feel like it's probably not that old now that I think about it. It's probably like maybe like turn of the 20th century or something. Yeah, so cocktails really, like, the term cocktail was first seen somewhere between 1798 and 1803, Mm. and the word first showed up in print in the U.S. in 1803. So so that's earlier than I thought, okay. Mm -hmm. So, of course, people have been mixing 
alcohol with things with other ingredients for like mm-hmm. millennium but right. we were mostly talking about like beer wine mead that mm-hmm. kind of stuff but a couple of things happened at the turn of the 19th century that sort of set the stage for cocktails to become popular okay. the first was in 1767 artificial carbonation was achieved Mm. By 1800, ice was for sale in America in the form of big slabs that were hacked out of frozen lakes. Refrigeration arrived in 1803, and in 1826, continuous distillation was invented by Robert Stein, which cleared the way for Aeneas Coffee to develop his still so that good quality spirits could reliably be mass-produced. Traditionally, cocktail... The word cocktail means a drink that is made from distilled spirits, sugar, water, and bitters. Mm. That is a cocktail. Okay. Pretty simple. Yeah. You've also got stuff like punches and shrubs and, you know, cobblers, slugs, like all that (laughs) kind of other stuff. The term is now a blanket term for all mixed drinks, but, you know. Right. There we go. Uh, Okay. So where did the word cocktail come from? Mm -hmm. Prior to 1798, the word cocktail was a term for a non-thoroughbred horse that had had its tail docked. Mm. Cocktail historian David Wondrich also speculates that the term might refer to gingering, which was a practice of giving a horse a ginger suppository to perk it up. (laughs) What the fuck? Just like... (laughs) Again, just like the first person who had that idea, like, needs a prize. There's, yeah, I mean, again, like, what we find in this podcast is just, like, the true origins of things mm-hmm. is confusing at best. <laughs> um, <laughs> if it's not white supremacy, it's suppositories. If it's not white supremacy, the patriarchy, or anti-Semitism, it's suppositories. <laughs> The first known recorded definition of a cocktail arrives in the Balance and Columbian Repository on May 13th, 1806. That's when editor Henry Croswell answered the question, what is a cocktail, with the following. Cocktail is a stimulating liquor composed of spirits of any kind, sugar, water, and bitters. He then went on to talk about how they were a good tool of electioneers and Democrats. It's like some good party politics. Yeah, exactly. 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 The father of American mixology, a man named Professor, in quotes, Professor Jerry Thomas. uh, He's an American bartender who ran several saloons in New York City. Mm. He wrote the first bartender's guide titled The Bartender's Guide. Mm-hmm. Subtitle: How to Mix Drinks. Sub subtitled: The Bon Vivant's Companion, <laughs> and he wrote that in 1862. Mm. In addition to recipes for punches, sours, slings, cobblers, shrubs, toddies, flips, and more, <laughs> he listed recipes for ten cocktails. Those cocktails were the brandy cocktail, the champagne cocktail, the fancy brandy cocktail, the fancy gin cocktail, the gin cocktail, the Japanese cocktail, mm. the Jersey cocktail, the soda cocktail, the cocktail, and the whiskey cocktail. <laughs> you can find copies of that book online. So if you're desperately curious about what just the cocktail is, mm. you can go and look it up. The first cocktail party was thrown in April of 1917 by Julius S. Walsh Jr. in St. Louis, Missouri. Mm. I was like, how do we know that? 
Right. Yeah, that's very specific. Yeah, very specific. And then I found an article from a Tacoma, Washington newspaper that was like, last Sunday, Mrs. Julius S. Walsh Jr. threw a cocktail party and it talks about it. And it's like, and now they've become all the rage. Hmm. History's weird. (laughs) I don't understand why the Tacoma, Washington was reporting on a cocktail party in St. Louis, but. Before a cocktail party was even a thing. Yeah. And how they got word of it in like a week and a half. Right. (laughs) Very strange. Okay. So at this cocktail party, 50 guests were invited on a Sunday afternoon for this hour long cocktail party that ended when lunch was served at 1 p.m. Mm -hmm. The location of this first cocktail party still stands today because it was purchased by the Roman Catholic Archdiocese of St. Louis in 1924. And it remains the Archbishop's residence to this day. Mm. Fun fact, the house next door is home to the 4522 Club, and that is a nonprofit that runs, it provides space for recovery meetings. Interesting. (laughs) Interesting. Cocktails, this wasn't stated explicitly anywhere, but it kind of seemed like cocktails were like a day drink. It was something like there was talk of like 49ers chugging gin cocktails in mm. the morning because they had gin and like sugar in them. And it would sort of like perk you up, kinda. perk you up before you, I guess, needed to go gold rushing. Mm-hmm. <laughs> There's a lot of talk of them being what people would drink to cure a hangover. Mm-hmm. So it seems like these mixed drinks were like day drinks and the, the straight stuff on the rocks was what people were drinking like in the evenings mm. Interesting. in the beginning. So that happens. And then in the years following, cocktails start becoming more and more popular, reaching sort of a fever pitch during Prohibition. Yeah, I and guess that's what I was thinking was maybe a turn of the century thing. Because I, yeah. I think of it as such a 1920s kind of. Yeah. And there's a reason for that. And the reason yeah. is that spirits was easier to transport and took up less space than beer and wine. Right. So you've got that happening, but of course, the liquor that was being made during Prohibition was significantly worse (laughs) than what we were getting before, but it still got you drunk. Mm -hmm. Lots of bathtub gin and stuff. Yeah. And Mm -hmm. there, I was reading stuff that like bootleggers, like they would resort to extreme measures to recreate the flavor of liquor during this time. Mostly what we're looking at is to recreate the flavor of aged liquors Mm -hmm. this is gross sorry everybody uh i guess like slight content warning during prohibition bootleggers were adding dead rats or rotting meat to moonshine to mimic the flavor of bourbon Mm. they were adding juniper oil to raw alcohol to make gin Mm. and mixing in creosote which is an antiseptic made from wood tar to recreate scotch's smoky flavor Mm, i do just have to say (laughs) that if you drink something that the flavor of it can be reproduced by adding dead rats or rotting meat (laughs) i'm gonna let you all fill in the blanks yeah well i mean as as a big whiskey drinker myself when you say that about bourbon i'm like yeah no i can almost see it Uh, So Prohibition saw a swing from, like, I think prior to this, whiskey had really been, like, America's liquor. Mm. During Prohibition, it becomes gin because, of course, it doesn't need to be aged. You can make it, like you said, in your bathtub. It's easier to produce illicitly. We also get the rise of sweet cocktails during this time because... 
honey, fruit juice, all of those things were being added to mask the foul taste of this homemade liquor. And it made mm. the it made the drinks go down easier, essentially. Right. Just a fun little fact, prior to prohibition, liquor made up less than 40% of the country's alcohol sales. After prohibition, more than 75%. Mm. So a big, big boom in yeah. the consumption of alcohol during prohibition. I mean, like, I, I almost want to do prohibition as a subject to someone, but it's such a big subject but it's just like nothing about prohibition worked the way it was supposed to <laughs> i really think because what did I, say? I think it was they dubbed it the noble experiment or something mm-hmm. like that <laughs> and it's just one of those things that it's like people needed to drink there was a lot of shit going on Mm-hmm. during prohibition we just come out of the first world war we were getting ready to go into depression into a depression like people just needed to be drunk well and people are still like yeah you had the roaring 20s but then like you also had like people fucking choking to death on black lung and the mines and stuff like yeah you, you know. people d- having like severe ptsd from world war one right stuff is hard and they needed to drink and then all prohibition did was make drinking more fun and more sexy mm-hmm. yeah and speakeasies it was you know you were hiding and well it pretty much created the american mafias yeah you know, you're welcome for that you're welcome there you go <laughs> teetotalers good job just yeah. as a side note tiki culture rose from the ashes of prohibition Mm. that in and of itself is a fascinating story so more on that in a future episode oh yeah i'm definitely intrigued now yeah cocktail culture started to decline in the 60s and 70s for two reasons Mm. beer was becoming very popular in the Mm. 1960s and in the 1970s we were dealing with a sluggish economy that was you know heading towards a pretty big recession and there was a lot of drugs Mm -hmm. (laughs) so people were like i could either drink a manhattan or i could take a bump of coke right exactly so they did they did the coke (laughs) everybody they did the cocaine yeah (laughs) by the 1980s cocktails were coming back into style and the 80s is when we see vodka become the country's liquor of choice Mm There's also, I'll get, I think I get into it a little bit later. There's also this weird thing about the eighties because like, so cocktails were very big after prohibition through the 1950s, they dipped during the sixties and seventies, they start to come back in the eighties, but that's when we start to get like wine coolers and we start Mm -hmm. to get cocktails like a sea breeze. And so everybody wanted everything like really sweet. Yeah. That's still my, like my favorite thing about, um, or one of my favorite things about the movie Zodiac is the sea breeze. Oh my God, that's right. (laughs) Oh God, that's right. Yeah. I forgot about that. Um, And then, so we have that and we, that's also like, again, I'll get into it a little bit later, but we start getting pre-mixes. So like the bottles of, of like margarita mix and daiquiri mix and Mm -hmm. all that kind of stuff starts being sold. I think kept the margarita mix industry like in business for <laughs> amazing and then in the 90s we see the beginning of a revival of classic cocktail culture mm-hmm. so you get bartenders like dale DeGroff, who is still i'm not sure if dale is still alive but he was like he kind of like launched this movement mm-hmm. he was a bartender at new york city's rainbow room and he starts to look back to like professor thomas's Mm -hmm. cocktail recipes and starts looking at all of these books and bartenders manuals from like the early 1900s 
And basically he launches like a cocktail renaissance. Mm -hmm. This is a movement that is that heavily hinges on like historical values and strict quality standards. Mm. And it revolutionized the industry and it was the predecessor to the craft cocktail movement. Mm -hmm. So that's sort of, yeah. I was just going to say, like, I remember, because I remember the 90s when everyone was drinking vodka drinks. It was just everything was a vodka drink. And it does seem like kind of when I got to Boston, so like the early 2000s, all of a sudden it's lots of whiskey bars and things like that. So that's like that, I guess, the after effect of what you're talking about, about this, like, restarting of this kind of old movement. Yeah. Yeah. Because that's when I started drinking things like, you know, old fashions and things like that. Yeah. 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 So that's sort of like setting the stage for how we got from there to today. Right. Right. So let's get into some actual cocktail origin stories. Mm -hmm. We're going to start off with the classic, the martini. Mm-hmm. This is a classic cocktail. It consists of gin and vermouth garnished with an olive or a lemon twist. Mm-hmm. The origins of the martini are heavily debated. Mm-hmm. And everybody is like, no, we made the martini. No, I made the martini. No, like it's everybody wants to lay claim to it. Mm-hmm. So there are some that think that it is merely a drier version of an older cocktail called the Martinez. And that was a cocktail mm. that originated in Martinez, California. And Martinez takes this claim very seriously. So they're very much like, <laughs> no, we we made the martini. Mm. It's also possible that the cocktail simply takes its name from Martini and Rossi, which is a brand of Italian vermouth. That's what I always thought it was. I... I don't know if I ever actually gave any thought to where the name come from came from. I only I think knew that because I think my dad had some of that vermouth around the house, so I just uh-huh. made the connection. Yeah, there we go. It's also possible that the cocktail simply takes its. Uh, sorry, nope, I already did that. I'm all, <laughs> I'm lost. I'm a mess. Others <laughs> say the drink is named after its inventor, a bartender named Martini the Ama di Tagia, who was a bartender at New York's Knickerbocker Hotel. <laughs> but there's evidence that the cocktail was around well before this time. The first known Martinez recipe is listed in Professor Thomas's 1887 edition of the Bartender's Guide, subtitled How to Mix All Kinds of Plain and Fancy Drinks. (laughs) The dry martini that we most commonly identify as a martini today makes its first official appearance in William Boothby's 1907 The World's Drinks and How to Mix Them. That Mm. drink One, has the actual name of martini, and two, the recipe most closely resembles the cocktail as we know it today. His recipe calls for cracked ice, two dashes of orange bitters, half a jigger of dry English gin, half a jigger of French vermouth to be put into a mixing glass, Mm -hmm. stirred until thoroughly chilled, strained into a cocktail glass, into a stemmed cocktail glass before squeezing a piece of lemon peel over the top and serving with an olive. Mm -hmm. There we go. That sounds like a martini. Yeah. yeah, And I I mean, a martini is all alcohol. (laughs) Like, I don't think I've ever had a martini. I mean, I'm not a big gin drinker, so I just don't think I've ever tried it. Yeah. And this is something that like comes up when you start looking at craft cocktails and stuff. One of the things that one of the articles I talked about mentioned is that the invention of like an ice making machine Mm -hmm. actually was really 
damaging to cocktails because mm. you now had plenty of ice, but the ice cubes were smaller. Mm. So they would dilute the drink more. Mm. And these cocktails were really crafted to be like a perfect balance of the ingredients. So well, there's you the get... whole thing about like how you're supposed to put the ice cube into the glass in a certain way, not to chip the ice because that yes. will make it melt faster. And, yeah. Yes. And as we know, being fans of the West Wing, we know that James <laughs> Bond getting his martinis shaken and not stirred is him it's, ordering it's... a weak martini and being snooty about it. <laughs> right. <laughs> yes. So since getting your hands on gin during Prohibition was pretty easy, the cocktail was, of course, quite popular during that time. Once mm -hmm. Prohibition was over and better quality gin was available, the drink got drier and drier. Mm -hmm. So, yeah, I, my, under, my understanding of it is, is that it is dry English gin and sweet vermouth. Mm -hmm. That's my understanding of it. If I'm wrong... Please don't yell at me. I'm very sensitive right now. <laughs> but then, like I said, you get better quality gin. They start getting like drier and drier and drier. The cocktail, the martini, ended up being seen as old fashioned, but not in a good way during the 70s and 80s. Mm -hmm. But it came back into vogue during the 90s and it spawned many variations of the cocktails, both legitimate and false. Mm -hmm. Legitimate variations include but are not limited to the perfect martini, which is equal parts sweet and dry vermouth. Mm. The Churchill, which is no vermouth, gin straight from the freezer mm. while glancing at a bottle of dry vermouth. <laughs> Wet, which is more vermouth. Dirty, which includes a splash of olive juice or brine. Right. And if you switch out the olive for a cocktail onion, you have a Gibson. Mm, right. Okay. Yeah. I know a lot of people, especially when I was in college, I knew a lot of people who would order like dirty, filthy martinis. And I was mm -hmm. like, why are you, you just drink the olive juice? You obviously <laughs> don't like the martini. Right. <laughs> so like find a different drink. I feel like I've had vodka martinis, which I would imagine falls in the false category of martini. It does indeed. Uh, mm -hmm. False variations are basically any drink that has teeny tacked onto the end or uses completely different liquors and is poured. Sorry. No. I'm going to pause there. A vodka martini is a legitimate variation. Mm. However, connoisseurs will judge you a little bit for <laughs> using vodka, which is essentially flavorless right. instead of gin, which has a much more complex flavor. Yeah, which is why I don't like gin. But yeah. yeah. So <laughs> right. that's the thing is that like, it's technically a vodka martini is technically illegitimate, but okay. people are going to be like, mm, you're still going to get like some a, side eye. Yeah. You're going to get a little side eye. Okay. Right. Fair enough. Yeah. So false variations. These are variations that, you know, has teeny tacked onto the end or that uses completely different liquors and is just poured into your classic martini glass. Mm -hmm. These include, but are not limited to Manhattans, which I didn't know, mm -hmm. uh, cosmopolitans, stuff like apple teenies, chocolate and espresso mm -hmm. martinis, that kind of a thing. My yeah. favorite illegitimate martini version is the porn star martini, which <laughs> is which is made from vanilla flavored vodka, passion fruit juice, and it comes with a shot of Prosecco on the mm. side. They're a lot of fun. People also have a lot of feelings uh, about them being called porn star. I mean, martinis. Just, you know, have your feelings and enjoy. You your can drink. have your feelings. I think it's a little. 
Yeah. I don't think I don't think we are helping or hurting the, you know, <laughs> like <laughs> right. <laughs> exploitation of people yeah. by calling it a porn star. I, you know, again, please don't come at me in the comments. Okay. Let's talk about the Manhattan. Mm -hmm. This is a drink that most likely dates back to the New York bar scene of the 1860s. There mm -hmm. is a huge rumor, but I believe it is in fact a rumor, that Jenny Churchill, who is an American-British socialite and also mom to Winston, threw a party at the Manhattan Club in 1874 to uh, celebrate Samuel J. Tilden being elected governor of New York. Mm -hmm. yeah. Story goes that an enterprising bartender whipped up the cocktail special for the party, naming the cocktail after the Manhattan Manhattan Club. Tilden would eventually run for president in 1876, but he lost out to Rutherford B. Hayes. <laughs> so there we go. Yeah. Now, Wikipedia says that Lady Jenny was actually pregnant and in France at the time of this <laughs> election. So the story can't be true. Probably apocryphal, right? Yeah, but it's a good story. Yeah. Sometimes it's okay to just have a good story. You know what I mean? Yeah, we don't need to fact check everything. We don't need to fact check everything. <laughs> okay. Traditionally, a Manhattan is made with rye whiskey, sweet vermouth, and bitters, and it is garnished with a brandied cherry or a lemon twist. Mm -hmm. Bourbon is becoming increasingly popular in U.S. Manhattans. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Well, it's a little, goes down a little easier than rye, probably. Yeah. Food and wine notes that using bourbon will result in a sweeter drink overall, but that mm -hmm. you can cut the sweetness by using dry vermouth instead of sweet and orange bitters instead of sweet vermouth and Angostura bitters. Yeah, mm. you get what I'm saying. A Manhattan made with scotch whiskey is a Rob Roy. Mm, right, yeah, mm -hmm. okay. And if you switch out Amaro for the sweet vermouth, you've got a black Manhattan. Oh, okay. The drink should be served in a chilled Nick and Nora glass or a coupe. Mm. Food and wine is also very clear that you should be using Luxardo cherries. Those are the original maraschino cherries. Mm -hmm. They are smaller. They're almost black and they come in like a thick, dark syrup. Right, right. Food and wine right. is like you should be using those and not the like neon red maraschino cherries. Yeah. <laughs> okay. I'm not here to judge. Okay. The daiquiri. Mm. I loved ordering virgin strawberry daiquiris when I was little. Like if I could get my hands on one when I was like out to a fancy restaurant with my parents, I was like, I am. I mean, I shit. remember like whenever my parents would have like dinner parties and stuff, they would always make me a virgin banana daiquiri. Yes. Yeah. So imagine my surprise when as an adult, I found out from Alton Brown that the traditional daiquiri has nothing to do with those slushy recipes. Really? Yes. Wow. It is a simple three-ingredient drink. Hmm. Okay. So daiquiri consists of light rum, fresh lime juice, and demerara syrup. Hmm. Combined in a shaker with ice, shaken until chilled, strained into a coupe, and garnished with a lime twist. Yeah, that's not what that's I it. think of as a daiquiri. Exactly, exactly. Yeah. It was invented in or around 1898 by a man named Jennings Cox, who was an American mining engineer expatriate working in Cuba. The Spanish-American Iron Company was situated near the village of Daiquiri, near Santiago de Cuba. The story goes that Cox was entertaining friends and he ran out of gin. He had access to plenty of local Cuban rum, but for some reason was like wary of serving it to his guests straight. Mm. 
I mean, we're like two decades away from people <laughs> drinking dead rat juice. Yeah. <laughs> so I don't how know. How quickly we forget. Right. How quickly we forget. How far <laughs> we fall. Um, yeah. <laughs> so the original recipe was served in a tall glass. It was packed with, again, cracked ice. Sugar was poured over the ice. The juice of two limes was then added. And finally, the rum before being stirred with a long handled spoon. Mm -hmm. The drink evolved to be made in a shaker after it became more popular. Mm -hmm. The daiquiri remained a Cuban drink until around 1909 when Rear Admiral Lucius W. Johnson tried it and was like, this is fantastic. And he brought it back to the Army and Naval Club in uh, Washington, D.C. Mm. Daiquiri was also rumored to be one of the favorite drinks of Ernest Hemingway, who I don't think ever met a drink he didn't like, <laughs> and JFK. Yeah. The daiquiri became very popular in the U.S. during World War II when whiskey and vodka were hard to come by because of rationing. Rum, mm. rum continued to be readily available partly because of FDR's good neighbor policy, which opened up trade with Latin America, right? Cuba right. No, and the Caribbean. Yeah, that makes sense because a lot of like the whiskeys and stuff are coming from Europe. That's going to be a lot harder. Yeah, yeah. Interesting. Yeah. So that's how we get, that's how like rum sort of really starts to come into the U.S. Mm -hmm. This program, the Good Neighbor program, is responsible for making Latin America fashionable and thereby making rum drinks, which would previously been seen as the drink of sailors and down and outs, <laughs> acceptable. Yeah. Yeah, okay. Yeah, uh, BT Dubs, the Good Neighbor program, is also responsible for the popularity of Carmen Miranda. Mm, interesting. Mm -hmm. Tom Collins, the drink that's based on a hoax. This is so weird. <laughs> okay, so in the summer of 1874, hundreds of New Yorkers were hearing that some asshole named Tom Collins was talking shit about them. None of them actually <laughs> knew anyone named Tom Collins, but they were incensed that there was someone out there besmirching their good name and they would run off looking for the supposed Tom Collins. The practical <laughs> joke, this is uh, New Yorkers. Very strange. I, like between this, the like Knickerbocker thing, like there's just so much stuff that I'm like, again, you all have a lot of <laughs> airs. Yeah, I'm just I'm not saying I'm just saying. OK, <laughs> so the practical joke spread to the point that even like New York City newspapers were printing stories containing false sightings of Collins. <laughs> New York City bartenders were like, well, we can do yeah. something with this. Sure. And they whipped up this drink so that when somebody would run into a bar and ask for a Tom Collins, the bartender would be like, here you go and give him mm -hmm. the drink. Yeah. yeah. The modern Tom Collins recipe calls for ice, dry gin, lemon juice, sugar syrup, soda water, a slice of lemon, and a colored cherry. Okay. The ice, gin, lemon, and syrup are added to a glass topped with soda water, stirred well. Early recipes warn the bartender to serve while still lively and ensure <laughs> that the soda foam does not spread over the glass. So this is about like making it super fast. Yeah. Like because like, yeah. you got to drink your Tom Collins so you can go beat up the actual Tom Collins. Yeah. Who's yeah. talking shit about your city. Yeah. Who's yeah. <laughs> talking shit about you. Yeah. Like specifically. Right. Yeah. There's something about the like, you got to serve this one. It's lively, which <laughs> makes me, which makes me laugh. Yeah. Variants include the summer Collins, which is equal parts gin and lemonade instead mm. of just lemon juice. Okay. The vodka Collins vodka instead of gin right the south side which switches limeade for the lemonade and it adds mint hmm. you've got a rum collins 
rum instead of gin, a mm-hmm. French 75, which uses champagne instead of soda water, mm-hmm. and the Juan Collins, which is tequila, lime mm-hmm. juice, sugar, and club soda. Say that. Yeah. Sorry yeah. that was going. Yeah. French 75 BT dubs is named after a piece of artillery. That's interesting. Just so that you know. The Cosmopolitan. <sighs> this fucking drink. Okay. <laughs> The Cosmopolitan is a version of a kamikaze, and a kamikaze is a drink made with vodka, lime juice, and triple sec. Mm-hmm. Real easy. Right. However, something closely resembling the modern Cosmopolitan and named the Cosmopolitan Daisy goes back to the 1930s. The Cosmopolitan Daisy used gin instead of vodka and mm. raspberry syrup instead of cranberry juice. Okay. And apparently Daisy is another, it's like a shrub, like a it's another kind of drink. Okay. So again, origins are like, well, maybe it comes from like, that. is it a kamikaze or is it a Daisy? Like, which one right. is it? Right. Origin stories for this cocktail. This is to me is very interesting. Origin stories for this cocktail range from the gay community in Provincetown, Massachusetts, mm. to the Cork and Clover Steakhouse in Minneapolis, to the Fern Bars in San Francisco. Do you know what a Fern Bar is? Mm-hmm. Yeah. So they're bars. They were bars for singles, right? You know, and they were decorated with ferns. Um. <laughs> so the fern bars in san francisco to the strand restaurant in south beach cheryl mm. cook who was a bartender at the strand in south beach said quote what overwhelmed me was the number of people who ordered martinis just to be seen with a martini glass in their hand it was this realization that gave me the idea to create a drink that everyone could palate and was visually stunning in that classic glass this is what the cosmo is based on mm. Her recipe calls for absolute citron, which was released, I think, in 1988, but it was market tested in -hmm. South Beach. So it's absolute citron, a splash of triple sec, a drop of roses, lime juice, and just enough cranberry to make it oh so pretty and pink. Oh so pretty Mm -hmm. and pink is like in the actual recipe. (laughs) (laughs) If you do an image search, like a Google image search for Cosmopolitan, you will see drinks that vary in hue from like rose water mm. to hot pink to like cranberry. Mm-hmm. Cheryl says to just put enough cranberry to make it oh so pretty and pink. So, you know, again, yeah, no judgment, but no. And, and remind me if I'm correct. So the Cosmopolitan is the, the drink that was like popularized on Sex in the City, right? Yep. It was in fact the drink that was popularized in the late 90s on Sex in the City when it was the drink that Carrie Bradshaw and all of her friends were drinking. Because there, there was is... a while there. Where, like, it seemed like everyone was drinking Cosmopolitan. I didn't because it's their fruit flavored, so it wasn't my thing. But Yeah, they were everywhere. And it was. Mm-hmm. Like, I think, you know, Cheryl says it, that she's like, people were ordering martinis just to be seen holding the glasses. Mm-hmm. And so with the Cosmopolitan, what you had was a drink that people could actually, well, I mean, if you don't like a martini, that people could actually stomach, but it would still give you the glass. And there's right. a whole thing in one of the Sex in the City movies where they go and they order Cosmopolitans. And I think Miranda is like, why did we stop drinking these? And Carrie says, because everybody else started. Mm-hmm. So like they were very aware that they were, you know, creating like a cultural phenomenon with this mm-hmm. beverage. Right. The Long Island iced tea. Mm. This drink is so weird. <laughs> yeah. I had uh, an ex-girlfriend who like loved Long Island iced teas. What type of person like do you envision when somebody's like, my favorite <laughs> drink is the Long Island iced tea? 
I mean, to me that, and this isn't necessarily me saying anything about this particular ex-girlfriend, although you can read whatever you want into the statement. But In between it, the lines, yes. Like, like, kind of like a boring person. A like, boring person. Yeah, like someone who's like, you want your cocktail, but you want it to be like very safe. Like there's something about <laughs> like, and I, I mean, flavor wise, very safe. Okay. Like, uh-huh. Uh-huh. I see. And because a Long Island iced tea, I know that like they'll fuck you up because it's all liquor, but like you don't, it's not like an adventurous palate kind of. It thing. is not, um, I could be like if you're into Long Island iced teas, I apologize. It is not a, it's, it's not a refined, complex, right, flavor profile. Exactly. We'll say that. Okay. So this drink is an International Bartenders Association official cocktail. Okay. The IBA, International Bartenders. Tenders Association, they have a list of their drinks that they're like, this is an official cocktail. Mm -hmm. And my understanding of that is that what that means is basically if you call yourself a bartender, you should know how to make all of these cocktails. The cocktail originates either from Long Island, New York or Long Island, Tennessee. Hmm. Mm -hmm. That all like just the whole iced tea thing. That that almost makes sense. (laughs) So the Tennessee version originated during the 1920s during Prohibition by the guy's name is simply listed as Old Man Bishop (laughs) in Kingsport, Tennessee. I am excited about Kingsport, Tennessee, because it is very close to Abingdon, Virginia, where I spent some time last summer and also uh, a much longer time like 20 years ago. Mm-hmm. So Old Man's version included whiskey, vodka, tequila, light rum, gin, and maple syrup. Mm. That was the cocktail. Old Man's son, Bishop, tweaked the recipe to add lemon and lime juice and the splash of cola. Mm-hmm. Okay. Right. Now you have Robert Rosebud Butt. That is a terrible name. <laughs> Robert Rosebud Butt. And he says that he invented the cocktail in 1972 when he entered a cocktail contest that was, you know, was asking to create a new mixed drink with triple sec. Mm. And this is when he was working at the Oak Beach Inn on Long Island, New York. The IBA recipe calls for tequila, vodka, white rum, Cointreau, gin, lemon juice, and simple syrup added to a highball glass filled with ice and topped with a splash of cola. Mm. Because of the many ingredients, ordering a Long Island at a bar, like especially at a busy bar, can get you, uh, <laughs> you know. You're not popular. Yeah, it can make yeah. you not popular with the bartenders. But also, if you have the alcohol to make a Long Island, you also have the alcohol to make like literally almost everything else. Right. The drink is a favorite of college students because mm-hmm. they do offer a lot of bang for their buck. Mm-hmm. I had gone to Las Vegas. The one and only time I've been to Las Vegas, I went with two friends and one friend. We had decided to go to this very like swanky club at this very swanky hotel. And the friend charmed her way into free passes into the bar. Mm -hmm. And the guy also gave us, he gave us like three drink tickets each. Mm -hmm. So when we go up to the bar, we're like, we're here for our drink tickets. And she was like, did you get this from the guy? And we were like, yeah. And she was like, okay, listen, you can do what you want, but I'm going to tell you to order a Long Island iced tea because it's (laughs) going to be the most bang for your buck. And we were like, Long Island iced tea is (laughs) around. Take that, take that, you know, how you will. Okay. So... (laughs) 
<laughs> so like I said, like college students really like them because they'll get, mm. like you said, they'll get you drunk really fast. Uh, one food critic said the drink was, quote, an act of mixological atrocity favored by <laughs> college students and washtrels. <laughs> the uh, flavor of a Long Island iced tea has been described as bright and refreshing, easy to drink and dangerously boozy. Mm-hmm. I will say that I have only had one bad Long Island iced tea. I've not had a ton. Yeah, I mean, I've every Long Island iced tea I've ever had, just like they do, they go down real easy. Yep, because they do. Yeah. They taste like lemony iced tea. Right. Yeah. Off you go. Okay, so we have variations. Variations include the Boston Tea Party that switches out blue curacao for the triple sec. Sorry, mm. my computer spell checked it, like auto corrected it to something else, and I was like. <laughs> yeah so i i had a I had a i had a moment i had an episode okay so boston tea party switches out blue curacao for the triple sec and lemon lime soda for the cola mm. a lot of these variations have lemon lime soda i'm just gonna say sprite because i can't do lemon lime soda mm-hmm. a bunch of times okay it's, so it's sprite Yeah. So switches out Sprite for the Coke. Mm -hmm. Uh, You have a Grateful Dead, also known as the Black Widow, and that switches raspberry liqueur for the triple sack Mm. and Sprite for the cola. Uh, You have a Hawaiian iced tea, which substitutes pineapple juice for the Coke. No. You have a Long Beach iced tea, which uses cranberry juice instead of Coke. Mm. A Tokyo iced tea, which uses Midori for the triple sack and Sprite Mm. for Coke. Coke, mm-hmm. a Tennessee tea, which uses Tennessee whiskey for the gin, and there's no tequila, and then a mm. Texas tea, which is the same thing as a Long Island iced tea, but you also throw in some whiskey. <laughs> you just add to it. That, that's you just Texas. add more. Yeah. To- and also some other stuff right okay so those are sort of like the origin stories of some some pretty well-known cocktails a couple Mm -hmm. of like last minute facts about some other popular cocktails the gin and tonic is rumored to have been invented to make quinine which is an anti-malarial drug and is also the main ingredient in tonic water more palatable for british soldiers occupying india Mm. it was basically yeah like they were like well you need to take your quinine and people were like it tastes bad and they were like add some gin i do feel like i associate gin and tonic with british people for some reason well they are very very the first ever canned cocktail that i knew of was the gnts that you could get in cans in in Mm -hmm. england yeah Okay. The mojito is said to have been a remedy for scurvy and dysentery because of the lime juice. Mm-hmm. Mojito is rum, lime, sugar, and mint. Mm-hmm. Right. There we right, go. Right. That's how. That's what makes it different than a daiquiri. World War II saw Europe's distilleries being used for the production of industrial alcohol, and that led to the complete lack of aged spirits like bourbon, scotch, and cognac. Mm-hmm. during that time right. once the cocktail revival started in the late 80s and 90s mixologists returned to the craft of making cocktails as they were made in the 1800s so just to clarify something here when we use the term mixologist that's not just like a fancy frou-frou word for a bartender right a mixologist is to a bartender what like a chef is to a cook mm-hmm. so all mixologists 
are bartenders, but they have a much more intimate understanding of flavor profiles and how flavors will work together, um, how alcohols will work in conjunction with ice and bitters and that kind of stuff Mm -hmm. for the mouthfeel of the cocktail. Right. It's like a little more scientific kind of. Yeah. So it is something different. It's not just bartenders, you know, stuff and the thing. Right. And like wanting to be like hoity-toity and like, don't call me a bartender. Call me like, there well, is I feel like difference. mixologists are like, they're the people who are kind of coming up with a lot of the variations and new drinks and things because they do understand now. And like, I have definitely, and I feel like we've all at various points in our like college lives tried the whole, like, I'm just going to throw things together. And like, if you don't really understand how different alcohols work together, you're going to come up with something real fucking nasty very bad yes yeah Yeah. so cocktail culture is now progressing towards what some call molecular mixologists Mm -hmm. and these are people who are using uh techniques found in like cooking science and from molecular molecular chefs Mm -hmm. to experiment with flavor and texture of the drink so this is where you'll get stuff like order a manhattan and it's like you get like a cup of like foam Mm mm-hmm you know what I mean? Or well, you wouldn't be, it wouldn't be a cup. It's not like a puppuccino. You'd get like right. a glass of foam right. and that kind of stuff. There are absolutely people who see this kind of like experimentation with cocktails as like snooty and full of themselves, highfalutin and all that kind of stuff. But I do think that it's super interesting to see how cocktails have evolved from this sort of like pick me up day drink mm-hmm. to like the means for masking the taste of alcohol to get you drunk faster mm-hmm. to these like celebrations of complex flavors well it's funny because like i do tend to and we talked about when we were talking about the menu like i do tend to look at some of the molecular gastronomy stuff Mm -hmm. is like kind of snooty and a little bit ridiculous but when it comes to like the mixology stuff i'm more with you for whatever reason i just i'm much more fascinated by it i think think it's yeah i think i mean i'm fascinated by all of it and it's one of those things that like i'm sure that there are people out there who are like well i'm just doing this to like set myself apart or Mm -hmm. i'm doing this you know whatever but i do think that there are people that are like no i'm interested in like deconstructing and reconstructing well like traditional things well, I feel like with drinks, with alcohol, because it can be so complicated, like combining flavors of alcoholic drinks that like it just it just seems like there's like there's a little bit of a like you're flying without a net kind of feel. Yeah, I think it's I mean, it probably was also that at the beginning of like the what did you just call it? The gastro. The molecular gastronomy. Yeah, yeah, it was probably also that at the beginning of it. And then, you know, just like anything catches on. Right. But yeah, like I do, I do think that that kind of stuff is super interesting. And it's, it's interesting to see that like in the 80s, you had ice machines coming in, you had the invention of the soda gun. You also had like the premixes that were being very popular, all of those things really and truly, and vodka being the go-to liquor. Mm-hmm. You had this movement away from liquor being like the forward flavor of cocktails to basically mm-hmm. being like i want liquor to be in there but i don't want to taste the alcohol yeah you want to taste everything but the alcohol yeah right. yeah and so and that's like a sea every, breeze and stuff that's right. the sea breeze that's like a tequila sunrise mm-hmm. that's that's that kind of stuff also right. just an interesting fact a drink that you order when we go out which is like a whiskey and soda mm-hmm. that is uh technically a highball mm. yep not a cocktail a highball 
Interesting. Well, I never thought of it really as a cocktail because you're just adding club soda. Like that's that barely, you know, it's like whiskey and water. I'll do that yeah. sometimes because like I love the taste of whiskey, but I don't actually like it when it's like super strong. So right. like you yep. just something to cut the taste. Yep. That's not quite the same as like a cocktail. Like mm-hmm. when I order like an old fashioned, like that's much more like feeling like ordering a cocktail because it's yeah. kind of sweet and it's a lot more like complex. And it's a lot more flavors. complex. Yeah. I always think about this. Gosh, it was the episode of Mad Men when they have Mountain Dew as a client mm. and they're trying to come up with a cocktail right. recipe for it. And they're like Mountain Dew and vodka. And Peggy's like, that's not a cocktail. That's just that's uh, <laughs> that's like a necessity or something. She right. says something like that where she's just like, that's not two cocktails. Don't like two ingredients. Don't make a cocktail. Right. Yeah. But so I think it's interesting. So right now we are sort of like right in smack dab in this sort of like craft cocktail mixologist mm-hmm. revival. Mm-hmm. And I don't know. No, like, you know, you and I went out for drinks the other night and we finally went to Happy Accidents, which is an award-winning bar in Albuquerque, New Mexico. Mm-hmm. And if you get the chance to go check them out, please do. They are female-owned and they profit share with their mm. employees. Yeah, that's right. Uh, which is super cool. But they are very, very much like mixology, craft right. cocktail and they, culture. And they have good stuff there. Like there was one, uh, and I'm not going to name them, but there was one distillery here in town that was trying to do the mixology thing and literally everything they had tasted like oh, fruit yeah. flavored soap. And it was just like, you got, and like it's not, I'm sorry, guys. Yeah. And you had your cocktail at Happy Accidents. It was their like, it was their in-house mm-hmm. whiskey. Yeah. And it was. Is good. that what it was? I mm-hmm. think, yeah. And it was good. Yeah. Like the, they, yeah. they're, they are very good there. Yeah. And they're like, I don't know. I, I went for drinks there with a friend one time and she was like, I don't know if I like this place. Cause it's kind of bougie. And I was like, I, that's why I like this place. <laughs> you have a little bit of a tolerance for the bougie. I think I'm not going to sit here and call you bougie. That's not what I'm saying. Listen. But I think you, <laughs> like you're, you're like, you're happy enough to go. Like if you can get a good cocktail, like here is my thing, because there was, there was a bit there. Everybody was like, that's bougie. And I'm like, what's the fucking problem with that? <laughs> You're basically being like, you like nice things. Yes, I do like nice things. Like, I don't know. That's like being like, you like things to be clean. Yes, I do. You like food that's fresh. Yes, I do. Yeah, like, I don't. That to me is just like a weird thing. And I get it. I get that there's this sort of like elitism thing Mm -hmm. that is really what bougie is supposed to be about. But if you can walk into a bar and order a craft cocktail and I don't have to like be Mm -hmm. on a list, Mm -hmm. I don't have to take out a loan, then I don't give a fuck if it's bougie. Cool. Give me my weird fruity cereal milk cocktail that I had at Happy Accidents and let me live my life. I, my my whole thing when it comes to most of that stuff is is it's like when you're the type of person who's like complaining about things being bougie all the time, you're kind of being bougie because you're kind yeah. of being like you know it's that it's the reverse snobbery kind of thing. And it's like I can enjoy like a good bougie bar. Um, I can enjoy a good dive bar. Like when we yes. when I lived in Boston, we would sometimes go to like the super fancy yuppie bars, and they can be kind of fun. You know, like, listen. Let people like what they like. <laughs> well, and like, don't talk yourself necessarily into thinking you only like one thing. Like, go try things. You yeah. Know? And there's nothing wrong with like, gosh, I remember when I was in college, there was this, ugh, she was such a 
like an absolute like manic pixie dream girl. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. She was the type of person who would like show up at a party with like, you know, like a certain kind of like tortilla chips that she had found by like going into the stores in mm-hmm. like the Latino neighborhoods in Austin. And we'd be like, oh, what kind of chips are these? And she was like, oh, you've never heard of these kind of chips. Yeah, it's They're the, like the dumb performance. They're so much better because they're not like mass produced. And they're not. And I was like, shut up. Like, yeah. <laughs> Shut up. Like how to make yourself insufferable in two sentences. Yeah. And if you like that stuff, look, if you like the like fucking bespoke corn tortilla chips, cool. Awesome. That's amazing. You don't make it like it's not, you don't make it your identity. Right. But you're also not better than anybody else who's like, can somebody just pass me the Tostitos? Right. You know what I mean? And maybe that's sort of like where the bougie-ness comes into it. I don't Mm -hmm. think I'm better than anybody because of this stuff. I think I'm better than other people for different reasons. Like, I have some friends who I'm not going to name. I love that. Okay. I also just love that you're always like, you're always threatening this of like, I won't name them. Well, it's just because they're going to, there's one person. We've never named anybody. One person in particular who's going to know exactly that I'm talking about him. (laughs) And like, and you're going to know who I'm talking about. But like, he like only, like, his thing is like, he wants to go to dive bars or like biker bars and stuff. Mm -hmm. And I love that. Like, I love doing that stuff too. But like, he doesn't have much tolerance for like the bougie places. And it's like, I feel like when I go out with you, it's like, you just kind of, you'll go with the flow, you know? And I'm a little more in the go with the flow camp. I probably sort of prefer, mainly because I just like kind of simple drinks. Um, Mm. So like, I'm happy enough in the dive bars, but like, because they tend to be cheaper. But like, even then, it's not a like, I don't get like real wrapped up in the like, the, I don't know, the aesthetic of it, I guess. Maybe used to. The politics of it. Yeah, when I was younger, you know I probably mean? did, but like now I'm just like, oh, I'll just give me the drink, you know? Just let me get, yeah, just give me and the drink. And hopefully it does not cost $15. That's the thing. Like, <laughs> Fair. Yeah. Okay. So that's it. That's my story on cocktails. Yeah. I hope you all enjoyed that. No, that was super interesting. Super fun. When, one cocktail I've always been kind of curious about the origin of, my guess is it's probably not that interesting as the White Russian. And that's just because it was like became such a thing for a while after the Big Lebowski. Yeah. So White Russian is clearly a variation on the Black Russian, mm-hmm. which had to do with, um, oh, I think it was like an ambassador. Mm. Which, oh, that's actually more interesting than I might have guessed. Yeah. But <laughs> I think pretty... it was just called a white Russian because it was cream and vodka. So. And I think that the, I think, well, and I think the funny thing about, again, I don't know where the white came into it, but a black Russian, the only thing that a black Russian has to do with actual Russia is the vodka. Like right. even the, whoever the ambassador, and I don't remember if it was an ambassador or not, but like they weren't from Russia. Mm. <laughs> <laughs> you know, know hold on let me see hold on pause i'm gonna see what i can find about it mm-hmm, mm-hmm. yep okay so we've got your black your black russian is vodka and coffee liqueur mm-hmm. this is from wikipedia black russian cocktail first appeared in 1949 so it's a relatively new cocktail and mm-hmm. is ascribed to gustav tops a belgian barman who created it at the hotel metropole in brussels in mm. honor of Pearl Mesta, I was right, then United States ambassador to Luxembourg. The cocktail mm. owes its name to the use of vodka, a typical Russian spirit, and the blackness of the coffee liqueur. So it's a little more interesting than I might have guessed. Interesting. More. The variations do not include a white Russian. Mm. Variations are the dirty black Russian, black magic, Irish Russian, 
brown Russian, Belarusian, oh no, Belarusian or white Russian, which is served with milk or cream. Mm-hmm. And you've got a mudslide, a mind eraser, and a paralyzer. Yeah. Other cool cocktails include the Sazerac. Uh, Ooh, you guys I love go, a good Sazerac. Yeah. If you guys want to look those up, uh, Sazerac and Hurricanes, both New Orleans cocktails mm-hmm. that were made because people needed to figure out with all the stuff to do with all the rum that they had mm-hmm. during that time. Then you've got stuff like zombies and stuff that came out of tiki culture. Mm-hmm. Right. Yeah, there's some other there's some other cool stuff in there. Like I said, yeah. tiki culture will be uh, an episode in and of itself because the whole like political climate mm-hmm. of what ushered in tiki culture and what ushered out tiki culture pretty fascinating. Yeah, um, I'd, I'd so like to hear that story. yeah, it's summer. Go grab yourself a cocktail on a patio somewhere uh, and drink responsibly. Yeah, well, nice. Well, I guess I'll go ahead and dive into mine. So this is one of those transitions that only makes sense on the Weirdest Thing podcast. <laughs> uh huh. So obviously, uh, we're we're just a couple weeks or so after the whole Barbenheimer thing. Oh yeah. Um, I did not get a chance to do Barbenheimer because neither I was, did I. I was with my parents, so I was able to see Oppenheimer. I did not see the Barbie yet i'm gonna try and see it here soon but oppenheimer i'm not gonna go too deep into the movie but just say like excellent movie definitely interesting for me because i'm from los alamos and it got me thinking about one of my favorite nuclear weapons stories that you that i know you're not going to be surprised that i'm going to want to talk about Mm. uh, because i've actually dealt with it in some of my like creative work in the past so this is kind of like a spinoff of of the whole like I don't know, atomic bombs being in the zeitgeist at the moment kind okay. of thing. Um, if you think about the Trinity test, which was 20 kilotons, or, you know, the bombs that we dropped on Japan, which were sort of 15 to 20 kiloton, these mm-hmm. are relatively small. Like, in in the, in the pantheon of nuclear weapons, these were mm-hmm. tiny little bombs. I'm going to be talking today about the Tsar Bomba, which is okay. the largest nuclear weapon ever detonated by human beings. Okay. So, sources for this are Wikipedia, um, an article from the BBC.com, one from the National World War II Museum, one from Radio for Europe, and then an article from the Bulletin of Atomic Science. Okay, so we've all heard of the arms race, and if you've seen Oppen, if you've seen the movie Oppenheimer, that kind of is like the start of the arms race, obviously. And you know, it was very clear that Robert Oppenheimer was very conflicted about what he had done because he he sort of saw the writing on the wall that there was just going to be this like incentive to just continually be trying to up the ante with these weapons. One of the major reasons that we did decide to bomb Japan, even though we probably didn't have to at that point in the war, Mm -hmm. was we wanted to show the Soviet Union, who were our, quote, allies, Mm -hmm. uh, during World War II. But we kind of knew where that relationship was going to go. And we wanted to show them, uh, basically, like, don't fuck with us. Mm -hmm. Well, it did not have the intended effect, predictably, (laughs) because all this meant was that the Soviets were like, well, fuck it, we're going to make our own bomb. And we actually, and they touch upon it in the movie, they actually had a spy in Los Alamos during the Manhattan Project, funneling information to them almost from the start. Mm. Gun and Klaus Fuchs, and that's a whole story in and of itself. So let's just talk about like the arms race a little bit. And let's talk about it from both the U.S. side and then the Soviet side. So from the start, there was a fight during the, the Manhattan Project. Again, they touch upon it in the movie where you had the, the kind of the main consensus is that they're going to make an atomic fission device, which is split the atom, release a bunch of energy. There's your bomb. 
But you had a scientist, a guy named Edward Teller. He was a Hungarian physicist. And just for the record, like if you're from Los Alamos, Edward Teller is like a villain. Because mm. Teller is seen as like largely responsible later on for uh, Oppenheimer's downfall and, okay. and hit, losing his security clearance. Um, whole other story. Uh, Teller was pushing from the start to do fission slash fusion device, which is what we think of now as the H-bomb. Okay. The reason, you know, he he was pushing the H-bomb because, I mean, frankly, uh, a hydrogen bomb is just, you know, they knew even before they had uh, successfully made any of these weapons that an H-bomb is just exponentially going to be more powerful. Mm. But the problem with that is, like, we needed, we were in a race against the Nazis. Right. And we needed to get something done as quickly as possible. So to do an H-bomb, you actually have to figure out the fission part of it because the way an H-bomb works. So the way, like, you know, like I said, a fission device, which is like what we used in Japan, mm-hmm. it's just, a, or what you would think of, like, you hear the term tactical nuke. Okay. It would be like this kind of thing where, like I said, it's just, it's one stage, you implode a bunch of combustible material into like a uranium core, which creates the chain reaction, which splits the atom and there you've got your bomb. Okay. A fusion weapon or an H-bomb, they consist of at least two components. You have to have the nuclear fission primary stage, which is essentially the same as like, you know, any kind of atomic bomb. This would use uranium-235 or plutonium-239. This would trigger a secondary stage, which contains a different kind of fuel, a thermonuclear fuel. These are generally would be like deuterium or tritium. Fun fact, when I worked at the lab in Los Alamos, I worked on a project where it was about creating tritium using particle accelerators. As like the CIA swoops in to cancel yeah. this podcast. <laughs> yeah. Well, like the great thing is I don't understand any of that science. So like, you know, <laughs> like if, you know, the Just Russians like- came, tried to abduct me to like, you know, give them uh, I was like, I couldn't ex- tell them how to do it, but yes. G men <laughs> just pop out from behind your bookcase to take you away. Right. <laughs> but yeah. So like usually you would, you would use one of these kind of fuels, most hydrogen bombs. Uh, oh, and deuterium and tritium. They're like an isotope of hydrogen. They're a type of hydrogen atom. This is why it's called a hydrogen bomb. Okay. The material most typically used in a fusion reaction is lithium deuteride which is more of a solid material, so it's easier to kind of have in the bomb. But basically, so you detonate the fission stage. This pushes the temperature way past 100 million Kelvin. This will then bombard the fusion material with X-rays, which will then create the chain reaction, fuse the atoms together. They go super critical. You get a big boom, and there's your H-bomb. Obviously, I am not a scientist. That is the most I'm going to go into, the actual physics of this. Okay. (laughs) Um, But the thing to know is basically like an H-bomb is multiple stage. Like you have to have the fission stage and which is going to cause the fusion stage. So this is why like during the Manhattan Project, they basically told Tyler to go fuck himself because they Mm. were like, we don't have time. Like we're still trying to figure out the fission stage where we don't have time to then also figure out the fusion stage. They ended up kind of leaving Teller alone to just kind of work on it because he was such a pain in the ass to deal with. Mm -hmm. But he just kind of kept working on it. And then he ultimately talked the government into building Lawrence Livermore Laboratory in California. And he was named director of that. And that was where they really like focused on the technology to create the H-bomb. Okay. Um, Sidebar, which probably has nothing to do with this, but now I'm just wondering about it. mm -hmm. So the... What was it? Was it the Rosenthal's? Mm-hmm. Rosenbergs? What? I think it's but the you Rosenbergs. know who I'm talking about. 
Yeah. Right? Mm -hmm. I'm going to look it up while we're talking. What were they selling and who were they selling it to? So they were supposedly selling information to the Soviets. They had, it was like, I think Julius Rosenberg had a brother or something who maybe worked with Klaus Fuchs. They were part of that whole chain, I think. Uh Uh-huh. And it is Rosenberg, just FYI. Mm -hmm. Okay. And I think, now I could be wrong about this. I think they've determined that Julius probably was guilty, but Ethel wasn't maybe. Really? So like, I, I, again, I don't, I'm not an expert on that whole thing, but there's, I know there's a lot of questions about whether she was improperly put to death. That's all. You can visit the spy house here in Albuquerque, which is where Mm -hmm. one of their brothers was Mm-hmm. like hanging out and i think he was like the go-between or something yeah i think it was julius's brother who's supposedly the go-between i think was klaus fuchs who was getting the information because he worked at the lab mm-hmm. in Los Alamos. yeah the spy house is bed and breakfast here in albuquerque very yeah. cool place it is a super cool place yeah okay so that's basically an h-bomb so here's here's a quote from this bulletin of atomic scientists sciences It says, quote, it was easy to apply scaling laws to see what the damage would be from such weapons. The 20 kiloton fat man bomb used against Nagasaki, for example, could devastate the downtown area of a large American city like San Francisco, Los Angeles, or New York. A single 10 megaton bomb, which is one one megaton is one million tons of TNT. Um, So a 10 megaton bomb, though, could destroy entire metro areas, subjecting over a thousand square miles to a crushing blast wave and searing heat, easily producing casualties in the millions. So that's the difference between an atomic bomb and a hydrogen bomb. Wow. Okay. So like I said, this was this was kind of a fight from the start. You know, Oppenheimer wanted to just do the atomic bomb. Teller wanted to do the hydrogen bomb. And then where later, like Oppenheimer was very like conflicted about what he had done. Teller not so much. And I'll get into it a little bit. Okay. Teller kept pushing to make bigger and bigger and bigger and bigger weapons. Wow. So like uh, just a little bit of information about the bomb, the gadget that was detonated at Trinity. And I know I talked about this a little bit in my Demon Core episode, but just a little bit of review. So it was put at the top of a hundred foot tower. It created a crater that was 4.7 feet deep and 88 yards wide. The surrounding mountains were illuminated, quote, brighter than daytime. And the blast was felt more than a hundred miles away. The mushroom cloud reached about seven and a half miles in height. Wow. So remember that seven and a half miles. Like, okay. you know, pretty big, but yeah. And then the bombs that were dropped on, actually dropped on Japan were sort of similar sizes. You had, I think the, the bomb that was dropped on Nagasaki was about 21 kilotons. Okay. The one dropped on Hiroshima was 15 kilotons. Mm. In 1946, we started, ta- we, we kept testing. And this is when we did our first series of tests at Bikini Atoll. And again, Mm. I talked about this a little bit in the Demon Core episode. Those tests were between 22 and 23 kilotons. So still roughly the same size. Mm -hmm. In 1951, we finally tested our first, quote, boosted fission weapon. In a Watak Atoll. Which meant what a boosted fission weapon was, was it was kind of our first attempt to add some fusion fuel into the mix okay so this is technically the first thermonuclear weapon our first h-bomb it had a yield of 225 kilotons so about 10 times roughly the size of the bombs that we used on japan Okay. And then we start getting into the H-bombs. This is when, finally in November 1952, we conducted our first full test of a hydrogen bomb using 
Edward Teller's design. It was mm-hmm. it was called the Teller Ulam design. It's named for both him and a Polish American physicist named Stanislaw Ulam. Mm-hmm. There's a whole controversy about who designed what on this, and a lot of people like to claim that Edward Teller took a lot more credit than he deserved. I don't. Again, like I say, he's treated as like a villain in Los Alamos, so I've always heard the like the worst stories about him. Right. Um. So I don't really know. But this was the Ivy Mike test. This is the first actual full hydrogen bomb. It was also conducted at the Inuitak Atoll. Due to its actual physical side and the type of fuel that was used, which was deuterium, it was not a practical bomb. I think it was like massively huge. Mm. It, it was just a proof of concept. Just to be like, can we can we make a full fusion weapon? That yielded a blast of 10.4 megatons of TNT. So if you remember like what I just said, a kiloton is the equivalent, one kiloton is the equivalent of 1,000 tons of TNT. Mm-hmm. One megaton is the equivalent of 1 million tons of TNT. Jesus. So now we're talking 10.4 megatons. And then we have our largest uh, nuclear uh, or hydrogen bomb test came in 1954. This is the infamous Castle Bravo test. Okay. We're heading back to Bikini Atoll for this one. This is the first test of an actual deployable device where we were using the lithium deuteride as the fuel. And it ended up being the largest weapon ever tested by the United States at 15 megatons. The thing is, this was an accident. It was not planned to be 15 megatons. It was planned to be 5 megatons. And this goes back to, like, I think we talked about it when we were talking about the demon core, is it's just, like, the scientists really didn't know what, like, this was all theory until we actually did something. So it's the whole thing of, like, you know, before uh, the Trinity test, there was a, you know, more than zero chance that we would just light the atmosphere on fire. Right. We don't know. We don't know what will happen. This has never happened before. We've never done this before. So we had not used this particular type of fuel before, fusion fuel. So, you know, the the scientists and engineers, they predicted a a five megaton blast. Ended up being three times that. It was also incredibly dirty. So we just irradiated like half of the Pacific. Okay. We ended up having to, like the fallout, there was a shift in the weather, which pushed the fallout severely downwind. So we had to go into the Marshall Islands and evacuate a bunch of different islands and atolls. So like the Rongalap and Rongarik atolls had to be evacuated. And then by 1963, people started seeing like people developing cancer in these communities, thyroid tumors, birth defects. Ultimately, the U.S. had to pay out about $43 million in like settlements this so yeah not great yeah (laughs) but meanwhile edward teller's like no no let's keep making them bigger let's keep making them bigger right why because (laughs) because we can basically so here's a quote this is um this is from a guy named uh isidore robbie who he is a character in the oppenheimer movie Mm -hmm. it's played by david kromholtz where well let's see i think his quote is towards the end of this this is from that bulletin of atomic sciences quote only a few months later in july of 1954 so this is after castle bravo after we had just irradiated half the pacific Teller made it clear that he thought 15 megatons was child's play. At a secret meeting of the General Advisory Committee of the Atomic Energy Commission, Teller broached, as he put it, quote, the possibility of much bigger bangs. At his Livermore laboratory, he reported they were working on two new weapon designs, dubbed Nomen and Sundial. Nomen would be a thousand megatons and would be used like a primary to set off Sundial, which would be 10,000 megatons. 
Most of Teller's testimony remains classified to this day, but other scientists at the meeting recorded after Teller had left that they were, quote, shocked by his proposal. And then Israel Robbie said it would contaminate the earth. Yeah, that's my that's what I'm thinking is like, at what point do you just go, OK, well, we blew away our enemies, but now we all have we've sprouted gills. Well, and apparently we would eyes and shit. If, if you if you detonate a thousand megaton, it would essentially create a firestorm the size of France. Cool. Awesome. What the fuck? Mm-hmm. Again, like. This is why I think you can see why uh, Edward Teller doesn't have a lot of fans up in Los Alamos. That's like legit mad scientist stuff. Edward Teller, by the way, is the model for Dr. Strangelove. If you've ever seen the movie Dr. Strangelove, okay. the character of Dr. Strangelove is based on Edward Teller. Because <laughs> um, like, what was, his, what was his plan? N- not, it's never been clear. Like I've read about him, he just want he just kept like it's the amorality of science where it's just like we're just gonna like see what we can pull off. Well, but you're not gonna be sorry. This makes me so mad. You're not gonna mm-hmm. be here to see what you can pull off again. Like total amorality. Like you're not you're not asking yourself these questions. It, it's just about the science. I think. Weird. Weird. Yeah. It's it's it's. I'm not I'm not gonna sit here and say Edward Teller was a psychopath, but this is psychopathic. Like this is this thought process is psychopathic. To be like, why not ten thousand megatons? Sure, why not? Sure, why not a yeah. firestorm the size of a country? Mm-hmm. Yeah, that sounds cool. Right. Awesome. I bet this guy was fun at parties. Yeah, I I met Edward Teller. You did uh, when he was because he would occasionally come to Los Alamos for like do talks and stuff, and he was like a super old man at the time. I just remember this like dour, grouchy old guy. Well, because he wanted to blow himself away, and nobody would yeah. let him. <laughs> well, exactly. So like you know, he was wanting to design these nomen and sundial bombs. Well, he continued working on them throughout his career and he even had planned to test a prototype i think in 1956 but it never took place they never would let him do it of course not yeah so that's what was going on in the u.s okay let's talk about the soviets sure What what were the soviets up to so like i said by 1949 they had developed their own fission bomb they were getting all this stuff from the rosenbergs supposedly from klaus fuchs they conducted three tests between 1949 and 1951 these had yields of about 22 to 42 kilotons so we're talking in the hiroshima size where are they doing these tests i was not able to figure out where these tests were a lot of their tests were up in the arctic sea like on these islands up in the arctic the Barents Sea. Okay. But I'm not sure about these specific tests. I think they did some in Siberia because, like, there's nobody Siberia. There. Yeah. But the problem with doing, like, we were doing, yeah, you know, we have the perfect, and I say perfect, like, don't yell at me, downwinders. I know all right. the problems, he- heavy, but, heavy air quotes around perfect. But we have the geography in this country to do this kind of thing, mm-hmm. to do these above ground tests because a lot of the US is desert, big, empty patches of desert. The problem with Siberia is it's all forest. <laughs> So like you right. could you could cause some problems there, but I do think they did. I think they did some underground tests in Siberia. They did, but I think most of their tests were over water or like Arctic islands. Mm. Um, 1953 is when they first tested their own fusion design. They called it Sloika. 
it was a single stage fusion design. Uh, and Sloika is a, is a reference to a Russian layered pastry. So they had kind of a different design than what we did. We had these like different stage, you know, you had your fission stage and your fusion stage. And I'm not going to get into the like the, the science of it because I don't understand it. The Soviets were playing with something called the layer cake design, which was like these different layers of uranium separating the different stages. Okay. And, the, and by putting a layer of uranium in between the stages, it's supposed to like boost the, the power of the weapon. Okay. But this first one, it was called, uh, it was a single stage design. They called it Sloika. It only had, quote unquote, only half a megaton. Uh, but that's still 25 times more powerful than Little Boy. Okay. Over Nagasaki. It would have killed a million people if you detonated it over a city. By 1955, they had developed a two-stage hydrogen bomb, which they called RDS-37. Again, relatively small compared to what we were doing. It had a yield of about three megatons. They scaled it down to 1.6 for their test. Now, one thing to keep in mind is that, like, you can say, well, we were building bigger bombs than them. So, like, you know, our stuff's more powerful. They at this stage were more controlled with their. Mm. They were they were fi- they were experimenting with ways to actually control the yield more effectively than we were at the time. Okay. Again, they're using a lot of information that came from us that came from Klaus Fuchs. Fuchs was ultimately arrested in 1950, but at this point he had passed so much information onto the Soviets that they had practically caught up with us. And then their their first hydrogen bomb was this RDS-37. It was tested in 1955. This is the one that was 1.6 megatons. And then we start getting into the Tsar Bomba. So I'm going to talk about kind of their equivalent. He's sort of like a combination of Oppenheimer and Teller, but he was their big bomb guy. A guy mm-hmm. named Andrei Sakharov. He essentially ran the Soviet weapons program. So he was born in Moscow in 1921. His father was a physics professor at the second Moscow State University. His mother was the daughter of a general in the Tsarist army uh, before the Russian Revolution. His family were devout Russian Orthodox, but he realized he was an atheist when he was 13. He went on to study physics at Moscow State University, but during World War II, he had to evacuate to escape the advancing Eastern Front. And so he ended up graduating from a university in Turkmenistan. And then in 1943, he got married. He had two daughters and a son. In 1945, he joined the theoretical department of the Russian Academy of Sciences, got his PhD in 1947. His initial field of research was like cosmic rays. Mm. But then his mentors, a guy named... Igor Kurchatov and Igor Tam were like, why don't you come in and help us where we're trying to catch up with the Americans on these on these bombs? So he became one of the key people in the Soviet bomb program. And he was largely responsible for taking the Teller Ulam design of the H bomb and then adapting it with his own, like I said, kind of layer cake design. Okay. He he was kind of a fanboy of Oppenheimer and Teller. One thing though is he was not, at least early on, not as conflicted as Oppenheimer about having contributed to the arms race. Now this is going to change. I'll talk about that later. But kind of at the time he would say, uh quote, after more than 40 years or no, this was, he actually said this. This was much later. He said this. But he said, quote, after more than 40 years, we have had no third world war. And the balance of nuclear terror may have helped prevent one. But I'm not at all sure of this. Back then in those long gun years, the question didn't even arise. What most troubles me now is the instability of the balance, the extreme peril of the current situation, the appalling waste of the arms race. Each of us has a responsibility to think about this in global terms with tolerance, trust, and candor. Free from ideological dogmatism, parochial interests, or natural egotism. 
So this shows kind of his shift in thinking over time. And this all really goes to the Tsar Bomba and his experience working on that. Okay. So now let's talk about the Tsar Bomba. Also codenamed Ivan, which was what the, the U.S., called it or vanya in russian so like i said if you've ever seen my short film vanya you know like i've been interested in the subject for a long time mm-hmm. we were the ones who called it the czar bomba um and we were kind of making fun of them with it because mm-hmm. the russians were kind of known like back in czarist times mm-hmm. for making these big massive things as show pieces they were too large for practical use so like they had the czar cannon and the czar bell that were i'm trying to remember like the bell is like a hundred feet tall or something and like i mean it's just like yeah like you can't actually use it right so the czar bomba was kind of the same idea <laughs> Let's make something so huge to show off that we can do it, but there's no actual practical way to use it. Right. It was also called Kuzka's Mother. This came from a statement that Khrushchev made in the 1950s to then Vice President Richard Nixon. I think at the UN, they were like in one of their like pounding fists on the table fights. Mm-hmm. And Khrushchev said, quote, we have funds at our disposal that will have dire consequences for you. We will show you Kuzka's Mother. So then... We were like, what? What the fuck does that mean? And so after right. this bomb went off, we're like, oh, that must be what he was talking about. The the CIA called it Joe. Okay. Well, Joe one eleven. They called all of the Russian bombs Joe, and then like with a number. Okay, <laughs> so, with a number. All right. Yeah. Um. So why did they build this thing? Well, it was because Khrushchev. Uh. You know, he took over. Uh, as premier of the Soviet Union after the death of Stalin, and he was always like kind of on like shaky ground like he wasn't nearly as strong a leader as Stalin was Mm. he always had people trying to move against him so he needed something and this was at the time where now we're getting into the early 1960s you know this is right around the time of the Cuban Missile Crisis this is right around the time of the Berlin Crisis and Khrushchev he just he needed something to like show basically like who's got the biggest dick right so here's a quote this is also from that bulletin of atomic power website it says the soviets saw the u.s is committing acts of quote nuclear blackmail um so this is basically the threat of nuclear action which is sort of meant to force foreign policy concessions out of the soviets and he wanted to put an end to that so the czar bomba was essentially a big bluff that was meant to change that whole dynamic mm. so initial work began in 1956 the ultimate design was a three-stage uh, or more design. There's some argument about exactly how it was designed. But they basically took Edward Teller's design out of this kind of layer cake approach in the second and third stage, where they put these uranium barriers between each stage, which would, you know, just as the chain reaction moved through the weapon, it would just increase exponentially in power. Okay. Finally, in October of 1961, it was ready for testing. So it was flown from the Olenia airfield on the Kola Peninsula, which is over by Finland, to an Arctic archipelago called Novaya Zemlya. Pilot was a guy named Major Andrei Dernovstov. He was followed by another plane that was filming the test. The bomb itself was eight meters long. What? It had a diameter. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) So what what is eight meters? It's like 24 feet. No. Sort of 24-ish feet. Yeah. Right? Because a meter's. Yeah. That's too big. 
Yeah, well, just wait. It's eight meters long. Uh, the diameter was about two meters. It weighed about 25 tons. I read somewhere else it weighed 40 tons. I'm not sure. So I'm not sure what's true. Uh, it was so large, they couldn't actually load it in any Soviet plane. They had to, they took a Tupolev T-95, which was the biggest plane in the Soviet arsenal. And they mm-hmm. took the bomb bay doors off the bottom and just hung it out of the bottom of the plane. Can you imagine being the pilot and showing up and being like, sorry, you want me to what? <laughs> oh, well, just wait. There's a little bit more about the pilot here. Just a second. Okay. <laughs> the bomb was so big that the parachute for it weighed a ton just on its own. Um, it used so much fabric that the Soviet hosiery industry had to shut down for about a year. This bomb was designed to have a hundred megaton yield. So remember Castle Bravo, which was a big mistake on our part. Mm-hmm. That was 15 megatons. This was designed okay. to be 100 megatons. So we're not we're not out there with Edward Teller yet with the 10,000 megatons, but right approaching. We're we're getting there. <laughs> yeah. But then uh, this Andre Sakharov, he calculated that the fallout would actually like the nuclear fallout would be so massive that it could hit Finland and the Baltic states and basically just irradiate all of like Northern Europe. So he's like, maybe we shouldn't do that. So they actually went in and redesigned it. They took some of the uranium layers out and replaced them with lead, which essentially reduced the yield by about half. Okay. So now the plan was for a 50 megaton detonation. The other thing that they realized if they had done a hundred megaton bomb is that it would have destroyed both the release plane and the plane that was following to film the blast yeah but once they redesigned it they went to the crews and said like you'll we might survive but you have about a 50 50 chance now you know very very soviet very like (laughs) yeah you know do do your duty for the fatherland kind of thing right so this is a quote from a physicist named frank von hippel he's an american physicist in princeton he's talking about sakharov and he says quote he was really apprehensive about the amount of radioactivity it would create and the genetic effects that it could have on future generations it was the beginning of his journey from being a bomb designer to becoming a dissident so like i said they replaced some of the uranium layers with lead cut the yield in half and it ultimately was calculated it ended up being about 57 megatons after the detonation. It was also weirdly a relatively kind of clean device. And this is because with the redesign, about 97% of the power actually came from the fusion reaction, which does not create the same amount of radioactive fallout. And the other thing that happened is that the, the shock wave was so powerful. They, they detonated it, I think, 13,000 feet in the air. And the fireball actually never touched the ground because the shock wave bounced back up and pushed the mushroom cloud up into the atmosphere. Oh, wow. So whatever radiation was there actually didn't even really hit the ground to the levels they thought it would. So it was weirdly, so whereas Castle Bravo was this incredibly dirty mom, weirdly, Ivan was not. Which, again, was not necessarily the plan. It was just like the way it worked out. Right. So I, I think it was on October 30th, they were flying, they flew the bomb from the Kola Peninsula to Novaya Zemlya. They released it from a height of 34,000 feet. It exploded at 11.32 a.m. Moscow time. And this is a quote from the cameraman, who I think was on the other plane. It says, the clouds beneath the aircraft and in the distance were lit up by the powerful flash. The sea of light spread under the hatch and even clouds began to glow and become transparent. At that moment, our aircraft emerged from between two cloud layers and down below in the gap, a huge bright orange ball was emerging. 
The ball was powerful and arrogant like Jupiter. Slowly and silently it crept upwards. Having broken through the thick layer of clouds, it kept growing. It seemed to suck the whole earth into it. The spectacle was fantastic, unreal, supernatural. Another civilian witness said it was, quote, as if the earth was killed. Wow. So the fireball was eight kilometers wide. It could be seen from a thousand kilometers away. You could actually see it from Alaska. So if you imagine like you're at the top of the earth and you've got the like mm-hmm. the dome of the earth and you have the Vizamoyas like in this part of the Arctic Circle, it was so tall that you could actually see it past the like curvature of the earth wow. from Alaska. Like I said, it rose from about 13,000 feet where it was detonated to 42 miles above the surface of the earth. So if you remember the Trinity test is about some seven and a half miles high. Mm-hmm. This is 42 miles high. For reference, the stratosphere starts at 31 miles. Jesus. The cap, like, you know, of the mushroom cloud Mm -hmm. was so wide that it was 60 miles from end to end. So even though the planes were 50 kilometers from the blast, they still almost crashed. Okay. Uh, The release plane dropped about 3,300 feet before the pilot could regain control. Oh, yeah. Like I said, it never touched the ground. The shockwave actually bounced it kind of back up into the atmosphere every building within 55 kilometers of the test site was completely leveled windows were shattered as far away as finland which was 600 miles away the sound wave reached as far away as dixon island which is more than 500 miles away the shock wave encircled the earth three times there was also a seismic wave in the crust of the earth that circled the earth three times Wow. So there you go. So that's so that's the Tsar Bomba, codenamed Ivan. So a little bit about the aftermath of this. So they were immediately condemned by basically everybody, particularly in Scandinavia. Like the Swedish prime minister was like, I talked to you a week ago and was like, hey, could you stop with the nuclear testing? So he basically took it as like a personal insult. Mm. You know, the British issued statements, the Prime Minister of Norway issued statements, the Prime Minister of Denmark issued statements. The Soviets were like, well, you know, they did the classic what about is I'm like, well, the US tested a bomb on the same day, but like ours was like much smaller and it was underground. So it's yeah. Like- not quite the same the good thing about this though it it really showed us like okay we need to worldwide we need to like fucking put the brakes on this so this led to just two years later we finally uh signed the treaty banning nuclear weapon tests in atmosphere outer space and underwater the soviets and the united States, basically both the the east and the west agreed to this test ban treaty so when you hear about the nuclear test ban treaty that's that's what this is Okay. It did verify theories about the potential power of these weapons, which basically proved that, like, Edward Teller was right. You could theoretically make a bomb that was, like, 10,000 megatons. Mm -hmm. Like, there's nothing scientifically stopping you from doing that. Which was, again, where they were like, let's maybe start negotiating our way out of this mess. Right. It remains the most powerful device ever created by humans. Uh, Its total power output was about 1,500 Hiroshima's. It was 10 times more powerful than all the munitions expended during World War II on all sides. The one single test was about one-tenth the total yield of all nuclear weapons ever tested by all nations. Its power was about 1% that of the sun. (laughs) (laughs) yeah you're not seeing amelia's face (laughs) you're like both amazed and disgusted yeah i think that's accurate yeah so like oppenheimer like i said sakharov he kind of hero worship both oppenheimer and teller and he had a little bit of both of them in him but after uh his work on this bomb it really changed his 
perspective. He became very concerned about nuclear proliferation, and he began pushing publicly for the end of atmospheric nuclear tests. Mm. He actually played a crucial role in this 1963 treaty. He was also a big proponent of peaceful nuclear energy technology. He designed a nuclear fusion reactor that was still the basis for like a lot of the reactors that are being built today. In 1967, he wrote a secret letter to the Soviet leadership explaining the need to, quote, take the Americans at their word and accept their proposal for bilateral rejection by the USA and the Soviet Union of the development of anti-ballistic missile defense. Because he thought by creating these missile defense systems, this would increase the arms race. Because now not only are you trying to make a bomb that's like massively powerful, but you're also trying to make a bomb that gets past our nuclear our missile defense systems. Mm, okay. And says this would make the likelihood of nuclear war just that much more. He asked them for permission to publish his letter and make his case to the public. They completely ignored him. So in 1968, he went outside of the USSR and he published an essay called, quote, Reflections on Progress, Peaceful Coexistence, and Intellectual Freedom. This is where he outlined all his fears of an anti-ballistic missile defense system. This led to him being banned from conducting any military-related research in the Soviet Union. He became a known dissident in Moscow. He became a very active human rights activist. He was also an anti-nuke proliferation activist basically throughout his life. This was all while he continued to be attacked by the Soviet establishment. He was actually awarded the Nobel Peace Prize in 1975. Hmm. Uh, The Nobel Committee called him, quote, a spokesman for the conscience of mankind. In a convincing manner, Sakharov has emphasized that man's inviolable rights provide the only safe foundation for genuine and enduring international cooperation. Hmm. The Soviets would not let him go to collect the prize. I think his wife went and delivered a speech. Wow. Eventually, you know, after the collapse of the Soviet Union, he became a big political leader in the USSR or in the former USSR. He continued pushing for anti-proliferation matters. I forgot to write down what year he passed away, but it was, um, I believe, during the George W. Bush era. Okay. Now, in the year since, we've actually, like, the one thing about the Tsar Bomba is that, again, it, it was totally impractical, could never be used in an actual combat situation because there was no warhead that was strong enough to carry Mm, it. The only way you could deliver it was with this plane, (laughs) which would move really slow. Yeah. You take the bomb bay doors off. You're flying really slow. You're going to get shot down before you ever get to where you're trying to go. Right. Well, in the decades since, we have now designed warheads that can carry um, bombs three times more powerful than the Tsar Bomba, but they've all been re- redirected for use in space, for like space propulsion and stuff like that. Okay. So there you go. That is the story of Ivan or Vanya or the Tsar Bomba, the largest nuclear device ever created by human beings. This is just, again, there's so much stuff that like I look at and I'm like, what would happen if you put all of that intelligence and mm-hmm. creativity and all that towards something that benefited people rather mm-hmm. than like was like how can we destroy well, the world and this is like this is the basic this is like the, the pinnacle of that mm-hmm. you know well and i think of like i mean i'm not even saying like don't don't do nuclear research because like why not put this into like coming up with the most safe uh, nuclear energy research you can to like, right. you know, we want to combat climate change. This is one of the ways we could do that. But no, right. they, we spent 60 years or whatever building bombs rather than yeah, like who, refining how we... the, the energy technology. 
Right. How could we blow the fuck up out of everybody, mm-hmm. ourselves included? And won't that be fun? Yeah. Instead of, you know, well, <laughs> literally like, anything else. <laughs> well, I'm like, and I've, like I said, when we're on the Demon Core episode and you know some of this is i'm from los alamos you know mm. I, I i have a little bit of a i don't know protectiveness towards los alamos but like i'm pretty sympathetic to the manhattan project itself mm-hmm. and i think it's because it was either going to be us the soviets or the nazis mm-hmm. we're going to be the first to have the bomb and say what you want about the united states and you know our colonial history and everything we're not the soviet union and we were not the nazis <laughs> like we of those nazis. of those countries you wanted us to have it first yeah but i've always been like pretty on the fence about actually using it in japan yeah. at the time we did yeah. And then, you know, it's like Oppenheimer knew it. And you see it in the movie, Oppenheimer knew. the like, once you open Pandora's box. Yeah. Well, and, and that's you the... have someone out there like Edward Teller who's like, yeah, 10,000 megatons. Why not? Right. And that's the interesting thing. There's a play called Copenhagen by mm-hmm. Michael Fairnaf, I think, is the playwright. And that's Niels Bohr, Heisenberg, mm-hmm. and I think Bohr's wife. Mm-hmm. Heisenberg being the guy who was the head of the Nazi bomb program. Right. And basically they're in like purgatory and the entire play is them talking about whether or not they have a right to Mm. essentially discover, create the science that would lead to this type of stuff. Mm -hmm. And, you know, the phrase Pandora's box, I I believe is, is used in it as well, because they Mm. saw that it was like, we like, we're, we're reaching a a precipice that we can't come back from if we do this. Yeah. And and that's, you know, and it's like, you could say like, well, you you definitely hear this argument up in Los Alamos a lot with Mm. people. It's like, well, it worked. You know, nuclear deterrence worked because we never had another, we never had a nuclear war and blah, 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 blah. And my thing is like, so far. So far. I mean, I'm not going to fucking put money on what Putin is going to do right now over there. Mm, You mm -hmm. know, like, do I think he's going to nuke Ukraine? Probably not. Do I think it's, is it it a less than zero chance? No, it is not. Yeah. A non-zero chance. Yeah. It's not a non-zero chance. So. (laughs) So there we okay, are. Well, we're, not, we're not out of it. So again, yeah, like that's uh, helpful. <laughs> you're you're welcome for yet another uh, f- fun happy times story this week. <laughs> I'll try and I did two like pretty grim ones in a row. So maybe I'll try and come up with something a little less. Maybe just grim. not so like humanity is terrible. Yeah, like a little less apocalyptic. Maybe. Yeah, maybe a little less apocalyptic. Mm-hmm. Right. Maybe there's that. Okay. Fantastic. Well, thanks for that story. That's going to give me stress dreams. Uh, <laughs> hope you guys enjoyed this episode. If you have reached this point in the podcast and you're on Spotify, be sure to go and uh, smash that little review, that little rate button. I've seen some people already did that. Yay. Mm-hmm. Thank you so much. Thank you. And uh, if you're listening to us on some other platform, be sure to rate and review us on there. Be sure to subscribe. Be sure to head over to social media when the post goes up for this and like and comment and tell us uh, now that we're checking the weirdest thing Gmail account, <laughs> send in other story suggestions and, you know, or tell us hi or whatever the hell. Like I said, don't be mean. I'm very sensitive right now. Don't mm-hmm. be, don't be mean to us. Yeah. Otherwise, like you guys are awesome. And thanks for listening and uh, stay weird stay curious and you know what we'll see you next time bye bye so listen friends we'll blow your mind with the finest nonsense we could find might be true and that's the weirdest thing